Warning, may contain conspiracies, vaccine passports, Jace talking way too much, LSD, and, or peanuts. I, am, Woodstock. Thank you very much for agreeing to come on the show. Thank you. Um, when I decided to go on this road trip through Europe, I wanted to leave it as open as possible because I just absolutely adore meeting new people, people that are completely different from me. I think it's a shame that people are stuck in their own little echo chambers. All they know is people like them. And it's fun. It's, it's nice and relaxing to be around people who are just like you because you don't have to try too hard. But when you, you kind of go through the pain and suffering of growing and just in general, um, you're able to expand a lot more. And so I have a friend who introduced me to someone in Romania and I'm like, well, if I'm going to drive from Germany to Romania, I'm not going to drive the whole way. I'm going to take stops along the way. And Vienna was one of those stops. So I, I, as you know, my listeners don't, I just reached out through Reddit. I, I went out to the, uh, I think it was the Vien, W-I-E-N, which I learned that Vienna is not a Austrian word. Um, and I had a lot of people reach out and I was very impressed with the, the amount of people that were interested and you were one that um, were one of the first ones to reach out. Um, and I had another person who was a local and unfortunately they, his wife had a, like a last minute emergency surgery and couldn't, uh, couldn't make it for obvious reasons, but I was very excited to get you on because you have a, a different background. Although you're here in Vienna, where is it that you're originally from? I was born in a town in Ukraine back in the 80s, so present-day Ukraine, then USSR. And so on your email, you said that you were Russian, but do you, why do you choose to say Russian and not Ukrainian? I don't speak Ukrainian, for one thing. My parents are Russian. And so this migratory aspect of people is very common. You'll often have people who identify as Russian, but they'll be living in you know, Latvia or Ukraine or somewhere else. This is, and you know, vice versa. So this happened a lot and that is common. So you also said you were half British. By this point, I've spent over a decade in the UK, which is longer than I've spent in than any other country. And I've lived in five different countries. So I think, I don't know at what point you can consider yourself to be of a nationality you weren't born with, but I think I'm probably past that point. Okay. All right. Do you know what's going on at the border right now between Russia and Ukraine? I can't really talk about that. I'm not informed enough. Yeah, neither am I. I've heard it on the news a lot. My brother's in the military, so it's obviously on the top of his mind because being in Germany, that's the base that's going to be supporting it. And uh, I thought I just found a lucky landmine, someone that might have been informed. But I appreciate you uh, saying that you don't know. It's better to not talk about things we don't know about. I unfortunately do that a lot. I talk a lot of, <laughs> I throw things out there that sometimes I hear myself afterwards and in question why I even brought it up, kind of like this uh, comment right now. I, I know what you mean. I think that's the sensation of understanding that you're out of your depth. I think that it, I mean, it hurts. But that is, if you make that a habit of yours, that is probably a good thing, right? I mean, maybe that means that you're doing something right. If you frequently encounter this feeling and recognize it for what it is. We're getting better every day. And so you spent the last decade in the UK. You mentioned that you worked in uh, as an editor. Yes. So 
I've been a videographer, an editor, and a video multimedia producer. And what did you do with that? Different things. At one point, my dream job was to be a science video producer, and that actually did come true after some time. And that was really great. It was mostly filming lectures, but occasional short-form content. And aside from that, lots of recording in studio and on location. Uh, things like, you know, everything from promotional events to roundtables to interviews. So, yeah, mostly kind of getting to grips with using hardware and software in the manner that is needed by the client. What kind of software did you all use? Premiere for editing and After Effects for animation. After Effects is incredible. That is very good. Is that Adobe as well? Mm-hmm. It is animation. And like, and the thing about that is that I think the premise of it, where you basically set parameters over time, it's remarkable how applicable that is to the real world. So I'm not a programmer, but when you speak to programmers, some of them might tell you that there's like a way that they think, right? And I think that that is similar because it's almost like thinking about containers, things that you know contain information of some kind, and then defining relationships between them. So what you're doing is you're changing relationships and through this process, you're building something, you know, and with animation, it's it's quite similar. So it's it's very exciting and After Effects is simple and it's remarkably capable of, um, of putting things together. I'd really recommend it. Well, I use uh, the Adobe suite. I've pretty much just use Edition right now. Like I, I've told you, I have the video cameras going up and I'm using a little bit of Premiere Pro, but um, traveling and then with just the huge file contents yeah. and transferring and storing, yeah. it, it was a lot more than I expected. Yeah. So it's it's definitely been a, a learning curve. When I decided to do this, I thought of it as like I could either pay for an education or I could pay to go experience something and educate myself along the way. And I'm sure I could definitely pick your brain about a lot of stuff that you know way more than I do. I'm the amateur here when it comes to multimedia. But you're the expert in conversation, which I'm very bad at. So this is perfect. I wouldn't say I'm an expert in conversation. I'm a guy that likes to have conversations. I mean, we've all been talking our whole lives and what makes one conversation better than the other. It, it's about connection and being able to, like you were talking at the beginning, there's certain things that you can't put words to. And I think when two people have a conversation and they get into a flow, there's things that you're going to pass back and forth that aren't spoken. And that's why I think it's so important and why I'm, I have the cost of doing these all in person. Although I'm eventually going to have to do a lot remote. I just think having the ability to see someone, see how they comport themselves, just the surroundings you're in have so much value. Um, that's why I think COVID's just been awful for humanity in general. I think it's a great idea to try to curb the virus through uh, partitioning ourselves off in these little spaces. But man, I don't think we knew the the consequences of it. Just, I think there's good with the bad as with everything. How was it? Cause you said you moved to Vienna right when it started, right? Yeah, I mean, I think in London, it really kicked off in March, 2020. And I moved just under nine months later. So yes, and that was just before. But as you say, correct, it was later that month that the borders became closed. So the UK, that's when the new Delta variant, I think, became announced in the UK. I remember early announcements, literally days after I landed in Vienna, where there was a lot of speculation whether there was even a new variant at all, because lots of people were saying that perhaps this was just 
you know, yet another way of the, for the British government to disguise its incompetence, to say that, oh, there's something really awful, you know, but everybody better be very careful. And there was really a lot of questions as to whether that was even true. You know, that, that that's the point at where we were at. But yes, soon enough, it became apparent that something was happening that was slightly new. So it's not unique to the United States that we don't trust the government? Mm-hmm. Well, being someone who, how old were you when you left Ukraine or then six. USSR? You're six. So you don't remember a ton of it. What were your memories of that time? Do you have many? I remember the kindergarten that I went to and, you know, I literally, I probably spent just a few days in school before I moved. So I remember that and things like singing with the children in the school and the kind of songs that we sang, but also, you know, we would watch television together. And I remember at the time, soap operas, TV soap operas of South America were a really big deal. So for example, one of them was The Rich Also Cry. And <laughs> so that tells you everything. That's what it was about. And they translated them into yeah. Russian? Oh, yeah. Interesting. I mean, so that was 94. And the weirdest thing by far that was broadcast in 94, however, it was Twin Peaks. Can you imagine Ukraine and Russian, Russia watching Twin Peaks in 94 translated? Like, people probably didn't know what hit them. Like, whose idea was that? But I watched that with my mother at six, and like, that gave me some nightmares. But. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was uh, in a very small place, really very small. It's surprisingly on Google Maps, which I didn't expect. I looked it up, but it is tiny. Like, I think it might be officially a settlement, which means that there wasn't very much. So there's not very much to remember. But yeah, I do. I do remember a little bit. Mm. So going back to trusting government, mm -hmm. um, what you, you mentioned something with the British. Uh, people were thinking that the British were just the British government was just trying to cover up something, or what were you trying to say there? I'm not very active on social media. However, one thing that I picked up is that there's a bunch of people on Twitter who ran some numbers before any official government statements happened, and we're talking tracking early reports. And then looking at the fact that respiratory respiratory issues would become bigger, and you know what does that lead to? That might lead to needing um, what do you call them? The chambers that you would need the um, artificial breathing in. I don't remember what you call them. Like but, respirators. Yeah, you know, like but the ones you don't. There aren't a lot of those per hospital, and so people on the internet were like, okay. This new thing has happened. We don't know exactly what it does, but it looks like it severely affects your airways. Uh, airways. And if you take that notion and scale it up to entire countries, what is going to happen when millions of people get sick and many of them are in the ICU and need this machine and there's only a few of these machines per hospital? People are going to die. This was happening at the beginning of 2020, maybe even at the end of 2019, before anything official was coming out. Of course, people did not know anything. But the point is like a bunch of nerds on the internet read these reports and drew their own conclusions. Now, these nerds from the internet, like, you know, they're international, probably mostly American. But even so, I think that is still quite uh, indicative of how many people felt that there were these strands of information. And to feel even a little bit informed and safe, it appeared that you could not trust the government to make anything 
intelligible of that, that perhaps it was up to you to figure out how to protect yourself and what might happen later. So I remember, you know, and like you probably remember this as well about the, the kerfuffle with masks. Do they work? Do they not work? Yada, yada. But before even any of those conversations happened, lots of people were already stocking up because they were like, okay, respiratory uh, virus, perhaps we need masks. So in the UK, I think the impression was similar that it was also mixed signaling from the government, a lack of information. And to be honest, I, I can't fully blame them for not exactly like knowing when to lock down or whatever. I, I don't really have opinions on that. I think it would have been difficult to predict. Having said that, they're the ones with the people who know the stuff. That's, you know, it's their job to make sense of this information. So it is kind of bizarre to me that possibly literally nerds on the internet appear to have been better informed. That, that doesn't seem right, does it? Yeah. Well, they can move a lot faster. With government, you have a lot of red tape and you have to wait for people to really actually solidify something. You can True. see a pattern happening and predict something accurately. And a percentage of the time, you're going to be right. And the government, to its credit, you know, should probably wait until there's something a little bit more concrete. I, I think there's a fine line between conspiracy and incompetence, and it, it just vacillates back and forth when it comes to really anything, but especially the government. How do you think uh, Vienna itself handled it? Just the lockdowns. Did they have lockdowns here in Vienna? Multiple. There was at least three. To be honest, I wasn't really counting. I don't see a lot of people, so I wasn't paying. I mean, my life has been mostly unaffected, to be honest, because um, I, I kind of keep to myself. What I will tell you is that I really didn't anticipate the, um, the very intense anti-mask and anti-vaccination moods that have... I don't know if it's just the like uh, the immigrants. I'm an immigrant, you know, and so I'm part of lots of international communities on Facebook or whatever. And I'm Russian, so I'm part of lots of Russian groups. And uh, the number of people comparing themselves to World War II Jews is astonishing. I mean, the people who are saying it's, first of all, is the Jews who did it. And yet we are the Jews because we're being it's conflicting information. I can't really tell how much of that is genuinely people saying things that they really fear or how much of it is like deliberate antagonism by people who are pretending to be other people. It's not clear. I think I think it's a mixture of both. But still, there's so much ire and um, just mean-spiritedness from both sides towards each other. And that was savage. And I mean, that's that's the Russian community. But even so, I think Austria has one of the lowest vaccination uh, rates in Europe at last time I checked, it was about 65%, which is very low compared to other countries. So I don't really, you know, Russians, sure, but like, there aren't that many, in which case I don't really know where that sentiment comes from among people who are from here. But I it hasn't been smooth and people are getting angrier. Some of the biggest demonstrations in Europe, I think, were here. Like there was one over which with over 30,000 people um, not long ago in Vienna. And these things continue. Like at one point, it was like every weekend or something was happening. It was very strange. Still is. Seems like that's happened all over the world. Um, anywhere there's not an authoritarian government, at least, where there's at least a semblance of free speech, people have been stepping up and saying, why are you forcing us to do this? True. And this is the first country that actually made it mandatory. And maybe not the very first, but in Europe, I think it was like the first major one. And I am pro-vaccine, but I have to say, I don't like that either. So I can understand where some of them are coming from. Like, I think, yeah, 
Mm, I think that's very tricky. Yeah, it's it's like anything. If you are the one in power mm. and you believe that the decisions that you're forcing on others are good, mm. sure, yeah, that's fine. Let's all do this. It's good for us. Trust me. But what that's doing is it's setting a precedent for when your team's not in power, they can say, hey, this is good, and you just blatantly disagree. So you can be pro-vaccine. And in my case, I really, I think it's a numbers game. I think you are less likely to be harmed by taking the vaccine than you are by having the virus. I, I think the numbers pretty well show that. And it's not one country or one organization that's just throwing these numbers at us. You can look at all these different amazing nerds online that have gathered a ton of data and you can you can see that i mean unless you believe that we're all living on a dome and it's flat earth i can't help you then i don't i don't know do you believe the earth is flat okay so you believe in science to a point um i i just think that the numbers clearly show the vaccine's fine but I don't agree with the mandates. I just think it's something that we need to trust each other to do by educating, hey, please take this because X, Y, Z. The second we say, no, you are going to take it no matter what, we are just throwing fertilizer on the crazies, on conspiracy theorists. It's proving them, quote unquote, right. I mean, yeah. it's not, but it, in a way, I, I mean, I have friends that they're very intelligent people, but they'll say, just wait, they're going to start requiring uh, vaccine passports. And this was like a year or two ago. Yeah. And I said, you're crazy. That's ridiculous. Yeah. You're just being extravagant. And guess what? Yeah. Second I get here in Europe, I have to get a vaccine passport. Yeah. And it's not a big deal, really. I mean, it's like, as far as like inconvenience for me, right? Mm -hmm. I I was already vaccinated. I'd already gotten the booster because I knew I was traveling. I downloaded an app, spent 20 minutes at a pharmacy, giving them my info. And now I just, I can get into restaurants. But again, it comes down to trust. Like, can we, can we trust each other to not allow abuse of this? And I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of torn because I'm like, it, nothing bad has happened. I guess it's been a good social experiment. Other people would say it's a slippery slope and that the next step is they're going to force us to do something we don't want, but. Might be true. It might be true. I, I'd like to hope not. Yeah. And I think that's how we have to live our lives. We have to we have to act in a way that we want the world to be the way it's best for us. Or, or in another way, like Gandhi says, like, be the change you want to see in the world. When I decided to travel over here, everyone said, well, how do you know they're going to let you in? COVID rules might change. And I'm like, well... Then I'm never. I'm just going to be sitting here on my hands. No, I'm going to plan as if it's going to work out, and so far it has. And if it doesn't, then I'll change those plans. But it, I think it's just really unfortunate that we're we have this propensity to just mistrust each other. Why do you think that is? A huge part of it is cultural and historical, because I've definitely seen. I've come across a study that talked about levels of conspiracy theory thinking in countries with a history of the government betraying them, basically. Which means that if you think about, again, you know, being a foreigner, I can tell you that people who leave their countries, who are they? They are survivors, they are entrepreneurs, they are people who want a better life for themselves, which means that they have to make big decisions, they have to operate on 
often not very much information, and often they're leaving behind a country they don't want to be in. They probably don't want to be in there for some good reason. If you look at the Soviet Union and Russia, that has not got the best history of looking after its people. You don't trust the government. You absolutely don't. You don't trust what they, because they really don't care. You know, you are, you, they want you to, to make babies. They want you to work. They want you to do all kinds of things, but they don't, they don't really want you to think. They don't want you to, you know, they don't have your best interests at heart. It's all about expanding and filling borders. So from that point of view, I actually can't fault conspiracy thinkers that much because they might have a, a personal history of repression of any kinds of things. And if you think about the fact that literally just a few decades ago, people being murdered by the government, I mean, events don't disappear anyway. They ripple out, right? Something happens and then the consequences of this event are going to ripple out not just in one lifetime. And, you know, when, when it comes to big events, they're not going to ripple out over generations. That's not a mark you can just remove. So it is frustrating and I'd rather keep away from people who are aggressive. But having said that, I understand why they are the way that they are. And it's not just a question of a lack of intellect or a lack of concern for others. Because like I remember I saw somebody online saying that the thing with Russia is that society, that they're, it's not that they lack, they lack care for each other, but it's the fact that it's so highly atomized. Because survival meant that you had to look after your family. At one point you were turned against your neighbor. And you know, and you couldn't trust anybody, and that meant that you would it'd be you, it'd be your partner and your offspring, and to truly care, to to not be dicked over, to um, to for everybody to survive, you really, really had to care for each other, and that's kind of about it. Because beyond that threshold, there could be very serious consequences for caring for others. You, and that was common, you know? Your friends could betray you, lots of things could happen. So it's not that people are mean, it's not that they don't care, it's that their lives have been shaped by external circumstances. Very well put. I, there's a phrase I'm, that came to mind while you're talking, it's like, whether you believe you're, what is it? Whether you believe you'll succeed or believe you won't succeed, you're right. And when it comes to trusting your neighbor and them turning you in, like I was listening to a podcast about Korea and how, or North Korea specifically, and how everyone will turn in their neighbor because that's, that's just what you do. If you don't, you're going to get turned in. But then I was talking to a guy named Carlos. He's living in Zurich right now, which also, as you're talking, I'm sitting here thinking about all the people I've talked to on my show and I have a huge percentage of them that are immigrants. Which is interesting. But anyways, he was saying, uh, I asked him, you know, what he liked about Zurich versus Mexico. And he said, just the, the, the fact that you could sit on a like public transportation and leave your phone and come back the next day and it would probably be there versus in other countries and Mexico's one of them. It's the idea of, well, if it was really that important to you, you should have held on to it. So I'm going to take it now. It's mine. Both work. And it's just whatever that society decides they're going to live by. And it's almost as if we're like the societies that are like a I'm out for myself situation. 
there's literally nothing stopping them from changing other than it's just the self-perpetuating belief. And I, I think that's why immigration is such a, I think, interesting topic to me because you get to have someone who knows a certain reality. The reality in Mexico, according to you know some experiences I've heard, is that if you leave your purse in the middle of the street, it will be stolen. The reality in Zurich is that if you leave the street or leave your purse in the middle of the street, you might get it back. They're both realities. And when you grow up in that and that's the only reality you know, well, then what's there's nothing wrong with that. There's no better way. That's It just is. And so you're not striving towards anything. But if you can go live in a certain place and see the potential of like, oh, my God. God, look how beautiful a certain society can be if we just decide to be a little altruistic. That was my daughter's uh, word of the day yesterday, altruistic, the selflessness, as she now knows. She, I, I think immigration is going to allow people to experience different realities, realize that theirs, although good and functional, there's nothing wrong with where we come from and makes us and we should be proud of it and happy that we had those experiences, but it also gives us ideas of what we can strive for. And that's kind of why I wanted to uh, pick your brain about, you know, your childhood moving to all these different countries. And we don't have to get into to specifics for personal reasons, but as you traveled through all these different realities, um, were there things that you picked up in different places, different cultural differences that you feel like the whole world should adopt? That's a good question. I think things are very rarely universal. And as you say, what will work in one place will not work in another. But I think, I think universally, this is not even like necessarily a cultural thing because I'm not sure any culture demonstrates this more than another, but I think openness, being being open to noticing, op being open to, but that's a difficult thing that you cultivate. I don't know how you cultivate that culturally. Culturally, I think every culture probably demonstrates something, something wonderful. You know, I've got a lot of problems with my own culture, but looking at Russia, for example, the, the experience of survival is very important. And that means not giving up. So for example, in cultures that have been through a lot. One very positive trait is not giving up because you can never give up because to give up is death. So not giving up is very important. And that means, that means a lot of things. And I think that when you have, I don't know, it's tricky. I was about to say that when you have a society that is doing quite well, that they, you know, they're economically sufficiently provided for and all this other stuff, you know, that they might not be quite as used to survival, but I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think that means that they automatically give up because what that might mean is that growing up, they might have healthier coping mechanisms, which means that they're less likely to hurt other people. I'm not sure. I think, yeah, I think every culture has its, its own positive points, but I'm not sure any culture demonstrates anything more than others that I would highlight. Yeah. I'd I love just variation. As I travel, I've I've seen different ways of doing things work. The the way I grew up, 
I would have been abhorred. Like, I can't believe people actually do that here. But when I open my eyes and I try to actually truly understand it and experience it, I'd see the beauty in it. And I think that's with everything. I don't know. I'd, I've decided whether I really am or not, I've decided I want to be an optimist in life. I want to see the the good in everything. And I, I think that belief has a very strong actual physical power. And an example I've used another, I, I talked to an economist and the lesson I learned in economics was that if everyone believes the gas prices are going up tomorrow, people will naturally go buy gas right now while it's cheap. But simply that act of going to buy gas will push those gas prices up and the inverse is true as well. And I, I really think that if we truly believe other people can be better and can be good and whatever good means, right? But I, I think just that belief will nudge society in a, in a slow direction, whichever it is. I have friends who are just fatalists or I don't, I don't know if that's the right word, but they just truly believe people are inherently bad because they, they believe that everyone's self-interested. That's a very economical thing to say. And I, I believe that everyone is self-interested, but I think that humans are more now than ever and have in the past and increasingly are going to be so more able to think forward. So being self-interested, I truly believe the most self-interested thing you can do is be self-sacrificing. Because if you think not right now in this moment, but generationally, and you start thinking forward on how is my action right now going to affect humanity in general, the most self-interested thing that we can truly do is be altruistic and help others. Synergy is a real thing me putting one unit of output versus me and you putting out five, that has been tr proven time and time and time again. And if we just believe that and believe that, and here's the hard part, people make mistakes. And the even harder part, people actively try to hurt each other. But it's usually something that if you see that person's story, there's a, you can be like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that he went through all of this intense pain. I didn't realize his country had this history. I didn't realize his dad used to beat him. I didn't realize, et cetera, et cetera. I can understand why he acted in that awful way. I wonder if I would have acted the same way and maybe not forgive the action, but maybe look at that person in a way to where maybe he isn't that action. He is a, a kid inside that was misabused. I really believe that. I know people who just flat out don't believe that. They believe that there are some people who are just inherently evil. And maybe there are like maybe like few a uh, few thousand people out of a billion, but that's such a tiny percentage. Why set up our lives around the small minority? And I think that's why it it's a good thing you're probably not a lot on social media because it seems that small, crazy majority is what's running social media right now. I I love getting people on the show that aren't super active and vocal and say, I don't know if I'm interesting enough or I don't know what I talk about because those are the introspective people that have spent a lot of time with themselves. And the more time you spend with anything, the better you get to know it and the more we get to know ourselves the more we can kind of look outwards and say, okay, how should we as 
humanity move forward. Um, sorry, that's a big long soapbox, but I, I feel really passionate about it. It's the whole entire reason I'm doing this. I don't think I'm going to make a crap load of money probably ever, but definitely not right now. But I really truly believe that just tiny nudges in the right direction and other people getting to experience trust. Like you didn't know me from Adam. You probably, I, I have a website, so you knew I was at least legitimate. I have my podcast out there, but the other day I was in a, a foreign country, met a guy, he was a clerk and we started talking and I'm, he mentioned that he was a Muslim. And I'm like, I've never actually really spoken to a Muslim before. Would you mind doing a podcast? He invites me over to his home the very next day, invites me in, we sit down, have coffee, we don't know each other at all, but it's just amazed me as I travel around, just the amount of trust that humanity has for each other. And I think that's expanding and expanding. And as bad as things are, definitely as bad as things have been, I see it going in the right direction. And I see you nodding there. I, I'm hoping you agree. I agree with everything that you said. Uh, what that's, it calls to mind a couple of things. Uh, for one thing, I think when you say that, it reminds me for one thing of what Buckminster Fuller has said, because not that I know that much about Fuller, but uh, one of the books I've got at home that I found quite powerful is called Expanded Cinema because I'm interested in the film and art. And this is, book is a collection of essays published around 1978, let's say. It's probably earlier, maybe 1972 or four. And it's basically a bunch of essays about art and about new and emerging art, because it's, at the time, video art was becoming a thing. Computer animation was starting to take off. You know, people were doing new things. And, you know, as you probably know, Buckminster Fuller is, you know, one of the great scientists of the 20th century. And he wrote this surprisingly lengthy preface to that book, basically saying, look, we're all traveling on spaceship Earth. And societies of the past, they, they had all this aggression and all this conflict. And what we ought to be doing is treating our planet like the spaceship Earth, to be aware of where we are, to to look after each other, to not battle, to not heighten materialistic concerns over the concerns for each other. And you know, one of the ways that we can do this is through expanding our minds with, with arts. But for him, this is the whole thing. But I mean, for him, like, he clearly thought there was like a civilizational progression and that he thought that it was underway. He was saying, if you look at generations of the past, look at how mad they are at young people, the fact that young people are trying to say, that we should be less tribalistic, that we should be less about the money and everything like that. He's like saying, well, yeah, they're right, but how do we accomplish that? I mean, that, that's, a, that is a big thing. And But yes, art is one of those things. But the other thing that I wanted to say was that I think it's always like a push and pull, right? You should not be excessively self-centered or selfish or anything like that. But to find ourselves in that sweet middle, to find ourselves you know, in the middle of the tennis racket as we, as we, as we hit a ball back, it's always a matter of being of, of push and pull, because if you look at history of great inventions, of great progressions, it is very often about people who learn some, something great and then use their minds to synthesize something new. They make leaps forward, but often these leaps come at a price. 
You have to be engrossed in your own mind. And, you know, you look at the, the lives of people who accomplish things. Most of the time, I think most of the time, actually, is my guess, something is sacrificed. They sacrifice their families. They sacrifice themselves, their friends. So they tend to come up with remarkable accomplishments. And, but in the process, they gift something to the world, but those around them also suffer. This is very common. And that is one end of the spectrum. Pursuing something that you know, that your mind, that you figured out something, that something in, you know, in this pile of information, you've seen it, and you're going to work at refining it into a diamond. So that's one end. On the other end, I think of the spectrum is people who see this and they recognize the fact that it comes with blood, the fact that it comes with pain. And they say, no, we are going to prioritize people and we're going to make sure that we will not hurt anybody, that we fully consider each other. But that also comes at a cost because to fully engage with people, to understand that they, each person comes with a universe of their own experiences, exactly as you say that they have been brought up, they, uh, they, they went through pain, they went through all these experiences that shaped them as people. You cannot possibly consider all of that, but you can definitely try. You can definitely be open and ev with every encounter, you can lend your whole self to them to really be open and to not judge them immediately and to consider what does any of this mean. But even that is also a vast undertaking. I am not very good with people, but I know plenty of people who are. I am in awe of their skills, but my God, it is so hard. It's one of the reasons I don't speak to a lot of people because frankly, I don't have enough brain for everything. So, but that is also a gift. And, you know, it's almost like a two hemisphere thing, right? You want the things to work in harmony. What you probably want is a society like a rainbow. You want, you have everybody representing some kind of skill or rather you want them all to be rainbows, right? You want every person to develop in all these directions, in the visible spectrum. You want them to, to not just prioritize one thing, but you want them to experience the spectrum of life and you want them to get along. But the point is they're all still different. Every person is going to be different. But when they're healthy and happy, they can probably coexist and then you get a greater whole rather than more of the same. So I don't think complete altruism is, go is going to be the solution, but I also don't think that complete dedication to one's own craft is going to be the thing either. I think you nailed it on the head. I've tried and failed multiple times in my life to find that silver bullet, that one thing that always stays true no matter what conversation you're having because there's too much variation in life. But I think it's safe to say that the one thing that you truly can just fall back on is balance. It's the whole yin and yang yeah. thing. We can't have 100% altruism because as the nice lady on the airplane says, you got to take care of yourself first. You know, <laughs> yeah. uh, Jordan Peterson's this guy online that a lot of guys follow and his thing that he says is clean your room. Mm -hmm. You have to take care of your home, take care of yourself before you can actually go and, and help other people. If you just give everything you have and then you're naked on the streets and die, you're not helping anyone. So I want to foster a world where we truly push a, a meritocracy, but a fair one. Like we, we talk a lot about equity, how everyone should have an equal outcome. And I just don't, I think that's a fairy tale land. I just don't think it's reality. I think everyone truly needs to pick themselves up by their bootstraps, 
do as much as they can, work, take care of themselves. But that's only possible if we have equal opportunity. And so being able to focus on education for anyone, regardless of your socioeconomic background, your ability to, whether it's taking out loans or not preying on those who aren't educated, like payday loans that are like 700% interest. There's certain things that we as society can do to truly foster meritocracy. And I think that's going to do exactly what you were talking about. It's going to allow people to be experts in certain things, but also have the ability to have the breadth to understand these other, these other kind of colors of life, as you said, with the rainbow. We if we see if if we have a hammer, all we're all we're hitting is nails. Or how am I let me try to say this a different way? If we're only focusing on very small uh percentage of life, then everything else is just gonna be we have to have balance. I'm I'm going through a circle right now because I'm trying to think of this one specific analogy and I'm failing at it. You said I was the expert at uh, conversation and you were definitely wrong. <laughs> so far, this is going very smoothly. And um, no, I but I but that is what you said earlier, right? There is no magic bullet. There is no one single approach that will work for all. As soon as somebody finds something that helped them specifically get something done. They say, look, everybody, I've discovered this method. This method yielded this amazing result. You take that method and you apply it, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but it's a terrible mistake to then try to people to get them to conform. There is no such thing. No one method. It isn't possible. You're absolutely right because the all all-encompassing variable is time. Mm. Like I try to relate, not try, but I tend to relate everything back to religion because that was my reality sure. as a child. And so you get Moses and he came down and he gave the 10 commandments. At that time, that worked for those people. And then as we've seen over time, things change. And when we try to stay static in any certainty and truth, there's a lot of heartache that happens. And we've seen that through Christianity. I think we've seen that through other religions as well. But we've also seen that through even in science. I, I think too many people are putting the word science on a pedestal and forgetting what science actually means. Yeah. Science is constantly changing and peer reviewing and proving each other wrong. Yeah. And science isn't, oh, we have an article, here's the truth, and you need to all do it because this article says so. Because and yet people behave that way. Yeah. And it's unfortunate. And it's funny because they're pointing their finger at like religious people and they're saying science, 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 but then they're not actually following science yeah. and yeah. vice versa. And it, I, I want everyone to see that because if everyone could truly see that, man, just think about, well, I think war for the most part would be diminished greatly. I think much of the violence right now in the world is due to just crazy ideologies. And I say crazy, I mean, that's a negative way to put it, but, you know, static ideologies, not allowing yourself, not allowing your God to change. It's like they say God is omnipotent. God is never changing, but I'm like, no, God's changed all the time, or at least his direction of what he wants us to do or she or whatever you believe God is. And the important part is that we're, we're using our synergies and working together, but we can't do that if we're fighting. Yeah, I agree with you. I actually think that um, I'm, it's interesting that you brought up religion. I'm, I can, I guess I'm an atheist, but I come from a religious family, and so I've seen 
you know, I've seen the value firsthand, but also I am quite scientific. But so, you know, having grown up on the internet, because I did, and having seen as well the aggressive nature of atheism and its delight in putting down religion and completely disregarding anything positive it might have to do is, I mean, that is an appalling mistake. And also, you know, you mentioned Jordan Peterson. I'm not going to say I know his writing very well, but I think I know some of his main points. And I think that uh, there's a reason that his messages resonate with people so much. They lack some kind of structure with which to, they lack a lens through which they can look at the world. And he's saying, well, look, you know, we had this, this, um, this system that developed over centuries with lots of wisdom, wisdom. And like, what is wisdom? It is something that is applicable not just at one specific point in time, it is truth, right? It is something that resonates for centuries, for millennia. Some things in some ways will always be true, but it's also partly a matter of interpretation. So this thing you're saying about trying to avoid a static status of something, I mean, that is crucial, isn't it? Because oh, I almost feel like it's, um, what do you call it? I almost feel like it's a dichotomy, right? Where whether you're religious or you're an atheist, I feel like a lot of people, they belong to one of two groups, right? Because I'm not religious, but God, I, I don't like the word spiritual, but I think that's maybe what I am. But yeah, I have it has a, a weird stigma now, right? Everyone's like yeah. overused it. <laughs> yeah, but but like, but I feel a lot of what I suspect would be recognized as religious feelings in people towards the world, about, about towards information, towards perception in the mind. I I, I suspect that because I, I feel, often feel I feel ecstasy often. And I think that that is possibly similar to what people feel when they feel love for God. I think that that is actually the same thing. In which case, I, I think that, you know, I, I embrace a lot of wisdom of religion, but equally, I think it's a terrible mistake to be very literal about it. And I think that this literal nature of people is, that is bad. Because again, it's a push and pull thing. You're not supposed to take things literally. You're not supposed to say, this is that, and that is, I mean, okay, some things like mathematics can have axioms, but nothing else can have axioms, right? Like no, and nothing else is static. And so whether you're religious or if you're an atheist, to say that is dangerous, to just take something and then use that to enforce a rigid framework forever and ever and ever, that's harmful and it's also not robust it's not going to work but yeah sorry <laughs> yeah i think the one thing that i always run into in my own mind is i i'm the type of person that i love the search for truth the mm. the, the capital t objective truth i want to know where did we come from? Did we have a creator or was it just, you know, proteins that just crazy mixture and then the mitochondria jumped in and we have this like amazing ability that no other being that we know of in the universe has the ability to do the things we do. We have these amazing, we're like, we're like little intelligences in these meat machines that are just incredible, unprecedented. And it's, I want to know just for curiosity's sake, but some people don't care. Some people, they just want to have a peaceful life. They want to be able to spend time with their family. They want to be able to know that there's going to be food on the table. And I find myself, I think, incorrectly projecting my need to know the truth onto some of these people. And it, that causes a lot of strife in myself. I'm like, why do you not care about this? And they're like, honestly, like, 
you're never going to be able to know, Jace. So why are you batting your head against the wall? I'm like, well, you got a good point. You know, as long as people are living a happy, healthy life and that's what they want, I need to allow them to live that life and push their joy and happiness and reduce their pain in any way I can. Unfortunately, I'm just too much of a curiosity type guy. And I think that with, well, this, our ability to have more and more conversations and transfer, not knowledge in a sense of this word or that word, but true understanding between humans. I think we have the capability through technology right now to do that more than we ever have. And so this thing that is humanity, this thing that is us progressing to whatever it is, excuse me, some people call it the glory of God. Some people call it just the collective of humanity trying to do better and creating and becoming, I don't know, some people just think the, the, the theory in my mind lately that's been uh, bouncing around and I don't, I'm not saying I truly believe this, but I think it's a very fun thought to have is that there's an infinite amount of little intelligences floating around in the universe. And eventually that intelligence will have a, let's call it a, a chance to go on vacation in some sort of physical thing. And that could be a rock or it could be a human, or it could be a camera, whatever it is, and they get to experience whatever that is. And people are just waiting, biding their time to jump into that human vehicle because we are the pinnacle of just cool. Like we can do some amazing stuff, man. We can do backflips and we, we've we created airplanes that we literally jump out of and we do all these crazy flips and stuff. And so as an intelligence living through the eons, you're just waiting. You're like, oh baby, let me, <laughs> let me get one of those bodies. And so I think that kind of explains a lot in that, you know, little model of why we want to have babies, why we want to, why God wants us to procreate and why we want to create as many humans as possible because wouldn't you want to have a chance to be in this amazing body? And then at the same time, it gives you this, this awe of how rare it is and how precious it is and how we need to just every second we have in this life, we need to really try to do whatever we can to just stop and look around us and absorb all of the amazing senses that we have at our disposal. But that's just crazy thoughts. You know, whenever I smoke weed, I'll think like, what What if? What? But I think that's, whether that's true or not, I think there's certain, whether it's a religion or some way of believing what life is, I think the outcome is what's more important. You could believe that we all are sitting on the top of a turtle, but as long as your actions are pushing towards helping others, being altruistic, being a good citizen, like taking care of yourself, creating more than you need and giving to others, doesn't matter what you believe. You just, like you mentioned earlier, we're just calling the same thing by different words. Yeah. When we were talking earlier, you'd sent me an email and uh, you said something and I wanted you to expound on it. Um, you said that you historically had been science, 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 but more recently, and th- these are the words I wrote them down because I really liked them. You said of a creative explorer of complexity, metaphor, meaning, and the tools by which you uh, explore those. Could you describe to me what you meant by that? There is an, a virtually 
infinite amount of information. When I say information, you know, if you look at like a subatomic level, you've got particles and you've got the electron um, and you know, proton, neutron, whatever. And very little of that, very little of that is actual matter. Much of that is empty space. And then what happens is you got this empty space, or rather, you know, it's not empty exactly, but you've got magnetic fields, and then you add extra particles, and between them you've got an interaction, and you know, you keep adding to that, and suddenly you've got an item. And that means that, you know, this cloth here, it is not actually touching the table. It is a collection of molecules that have also their magnetic fields. And uh, like that's, you know, they don't actually touch. At a very basic level, this is information. Much of it is binary. You know, the the electron is there, or it's there, or it's there, but there's very little stuff there, right? It's all about the interaction between things. That is what defines the relationship. And at that point, you scale it up, and suddenly you get stuff. Now, so that is a very small level. And you go up, and even in this room, there's so much information. A a person designed the design on that cloth. Somebody made this table, possibly, you know, in some other manufacturing place. The manufacturing place had like a process where they procure wood and then they put everything together. Yada, yada, yada. Nothing's monolithic. Everything, if you look at it, actually contains a huge amount of information. You and I, we come from different countries. We are different ages, different genders. And even if we came from the same place and we're the same age and the same gender, then we would still think differently because your parents would affect you and, you know, you would have a dog and then, you know, the dog would affect you, whatever. So although this information, there's, this room is small, it contains so much information that when you and I look at it, we look at different things. What we focus on is different. So although the dimensions of the room do not change, your perception is different from mine because of literally the entirety of your life. What you look at and how you look at it, what your eyes see even. Your eyes have a, like a limited resolution. Your mind makes up the rest of it. You have blind spots. Again, your mind fills it in. So, you know, you, you can actually more or less put data rates on this, right? Like, you, like I think I, don't, I can't tell you exactly how much our eyes are perceiving. If you compare this to video, for example, you know, it's probably like, you know, gigabits per second or something like that. Yeah, a lot. A lot. But according to some estimates, do you know what the, the bandwidth of consciousness is? It is possibly 16 bits per second. <clears throat> so let me process that. 16 bits per second. Yeah. If you download something through, say, Elon Musk's Starlink, you can get up to 200 megabits per second. You're thinking conscious... There's... You said there's estimates that consciousness is only 16 bits per second? Because they look at how much information you process per second. Like, you know, like there's like the experiments have been conducted where people have been, you know, demonstrated some kind of scene or an image or a sound or whatever. And then they would be asked a series of questions about uh, what they saw and things like that. So, you know, you can look at something for a second. You can only think about a very limited amount of what you just saw. But over time, you can extract it. But the point is, the information went in. It's just that your consciousness does not process it immediately. So I think that that is where a metaphor becomes very important, and stories as well, because you have infinite information. Literally, if I take 
a few steps over there, and I'm going to be in an environment already where I'm closer to a different chair, the light is slightly different, etc. Already the information is different. So the story that I tell myself about who I am, what I'm doing there, and everything else is crucial because what I'm doing is I'm discarding information. All this information exists, but my mind pays attention to very specific things depending on why I'm there and who I am. So, you, you know, let's think about films or, or great books or something like that. They are created by, by you know, either one person or multiple somebodies who have looked at some vast amount of information and then they have compressed it. They have made the decision to discard much of it and instead outline specific points. They've paid attention to something. Why do we have directors in films? They direct your attention. Together with editors, they give you a wealth of information, but they compress the world. What you're not, we're seeing is not reality. You're seeing a flattened representation. You're, you're like, even in the, like, Every, like the sound is flattened, you're hearing particular sounds, you're seeing particular things, the cuts are different and everything. All of that simulates an experience, it simulates reality, but it, it is not reality. But that's just, you know, and like what you're experiencing is also a simulation, right? Like you're not experiencing reality truly because you can't, it's too much. But again, your consciousness decides what you're paying attention to at any given moment. I mean, what this means is that everybody has their own interpretation. However, metaphor is so valuable because somehow it condenses all of the stuff and gives you something worthwhile and, va and valuable. And, you know, you and I were talking earlier about progression, about some kind of movement forward. And how do you do that? You are born, you are given education, you're given all this stuff, but you need to learn more because whatever you're born with, whatever your parents give you, it is not going to be enough. You have to keep learning because the world is changing and because it is infinite. And that means that we need tools for thinking. We need literacy to be able to communicate, to be able to read and to speak and to write. We have all these things. But then in addition to that, tools for thinking can come in different ways. Mathematics is a tool for thinking. and uh, metaphor is then also a tool for thinking because what it is, is it is a way of making meaning out of something vast and otherwise incomprehensible. I mean, I think that you could argue that's one of the things that religion does, for example. So it's very tricky to, uh, I mean, it is hard to talk about because it is so big, but I don't know if this all makes sense. However, okay. Do you know the word ersatz? Uh, like uh, it's a, it's an inferior copy of something, right? Ersatz mm -hmm. is that German? Yes, it's a German word. That um, what it means is you know you can have like ersatz coffee, for example, and what it means is not coffee, but it tastes like coffee. It imitates coffee. Like a generic? Is that similar? Sort of, but it's a lower it's a lower copy. Okay, it's a, it's a worse copy. And this notion of having like lower resolution copies of things, it's very valuable because engineers will use, you know, representations of reality to build buildings. They'll be like, well, out of all the factors we need to consider, these are the ones that are important. And we're using these factors to build something that will not break. And so, I mean, in practice, we use this for everything. Like, I mean, we're using it right now in some other ways. We're using like this, this way of, of looking at things. But they're still low resolution copies. They're still methods of looking at something that is simplified because otherwise there's just too much information. It, it is chaos. 
So you develop a set of heuristics, you develop a set of tools that when you encounter new information, helps you make sense of it, because otherwise you don't know what you're looking at. How do you, how do you process something you've never seen? It is unfamiliar. And so you can have the result when you're looking at something new is, oh, I don't like that. I don't recognize it. It might be dangerous. It might be bad. I don't know it. Therefore, it is bad. And to be able to deal with new situations, you need new tools. You need to learn new things, right? Because otherwise, how will you know what you're looking at? Like, for example, oh, I think this is very good, right? Um, I really liked Westworld. Have you seen it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, really good. So I... I don't know what other people get out of it, but I, I've, I was thinking about it the other day and I was thinking, my fucking God, it is so good because that is a story about consciousness. They're actually referring, like one of the episodes is literally called uh, um, the, the Bicameral Minds, which is a reference to uh, the origin of consciousness and the breakdown of the Bicameral Minds, which is a book written in the 70s, which is like, I mean, it's, it's, it's very interesting. It's worth looking at. But the point is that, you know, the premise is that You've got these robots and they don't have any feelings. And then because of a glitch of a thing where they're like, suddenly they have memories, they have dreams, they're allowed to reflect on things and they change. And they've got the labyrinth. And what is the labyrinth? It is like the path that you walk down and you are changed by it. You start off as a robot, you end up with something with feelings. And I think like, I think that that was the point of the show, right? That like, you know, we are them, we are in the, we need to, progress beyond whatever it is that we are. But it's very difficult to do that. How do you teach people new things? How do you teach them to go outside of that? And like, that's one of those things that stories do. They, whatever picture you think you're looking at, you know, doesn't look like anything to me. And then you go through a sequence of thoughts, you use tools for thinking. And that picture that was initially something that you did not recognize, it looked like nothing to you. And then it looks like something. Now, it can look like something wrong, you know, and maybe you would be like projecting the same thing at this, uh, at everything after that. But I think that is what, like, one of the things that metaphor does then. It's something that there's a, an immaterial and invisible thing where, but it, but it is, it is like literally magic. It is something that transforms one thing into another. And yet it has not been changed. It's still the same thing, but you look at it differently. You are performing the magic in your head. And that's what metaphor does. And like the tools for that, I think are, I mean, that's a whole other conversation, but that is why it's so important. And I think unfortunately that's one of the things that is quite tricky now because with uh, capitalism, with the, the pressures of the world, with the pressures of like having to earn money, it's almost like there's a right way and a wrong way to do things. And that's just not true, is it? They're like, oh, I mean, sometimes it is. Like with medical stuff, it can be. But, but, but I think that we are becoming quite literal-minded in a way that's probably not helpful. And metaphor is one of the cures for that. Yeah. Trying to decide which direction I want to go with this. Um, <laughs> Sorry, this is the thing I'm really passionate about. <laughs> no, I loved everything you said. And, and the hard part, as we pointed out, is like you said with the metaphor, it takes something that's inexplainable. And it's almost like a translation of something we understand and translating it into something that you, you cannot put into words. Um, which seems so... My past self would hear us talking. I'd just roll my eyes. I'm like, you guys are, what are you talking about? It doesn't even make any sense. Same. Right. And I think that's just age, age yeah. and experience and, and pain and suffering and surviving and 
rinse and repeat that eventually you get to the point where you realize that when people say crazy things, there's a, there's a reason why. Yes. It's Sometimes the things like- sound crazy because you've never heard that before. Because you think, I've never heard that. It must be crazy. And sometimes it is, but not always. So one thing that keeps coming up on my show, and I haven't talked about it in a few episodes, so I guess it's due time because I, it, it, I came onto this show not really having a drive. I did that on purpose. I wanted to be as open as possible. And there was definitely a cost to myself for that because I'm like, I, I'm so used to having all the answers that when I went into this deciding that I I wasn't the guy that had the answers and I was going to truly be open to what everyone says and really put it to the test, I realized how taxing that is on the human mind because people need some semblance of of structure and, and a foundation or else we're just going to go crazy. But one thing that kept coming up and I, I couldn't ignore it and then I started looking into it and I got really excited about it and talking about tools that help us change our minds, psychedelics was everywhere. And well, I'll just ask point blank. Have you ever tried psychedelics before? Yes. Um, do you think, uh, how do psychedelics relate to what we were just talking about? Or do you think there is any relation? I think it is intrinsically linked. I think you can get to the same conclusions, but psychedelics can help expedite the process. Which psychedelics have you done, if you don't mind me asking? Mostly LSD. I've tried mushrooms. They did not agree with me, so LSD. And what was your experience on there? It was incremental. The first bunch of times, it was for fun because I was younger and because that's how we all did it. It was for fun. Looking back, that is astonishing that that is that you can ever approach it, that you can think that it is a you know, happy fun time, and it, and it obviously can be. <laughs> but to approach it and to think that that's what it is, I think it's a grave mistake. And you know, and I think that's, that's partly driven by culture and a lack of, of information. Subsequently, lots of things happened. And I found that repeated experience allowed for more precise thinking. At first, it was just, you know, this rush of emotion, all this color, all these thoughts. But then, after you repeat the process, it's almost like you learn to navigate and you learn to take a closer look. And I think that's quite important. Not everybody is built for that. Not everybody will enjoy it. But I, um, and I think that, I mean, I don't think you should do it infinitely. I think it's so powerful that really you should know when to stop. Um, I don't know. What I'm, what I'm interested in knowing is how many people are able to extract or rather like if, if everybody goes through this process of, you know, their first time being vastly different from, for example, their 10th or their 20th, you know, what happens at number 50? I don't know. I haven't tripped that many times, but for me, that was definitely the case that I felt like my resolution increased, that I went from something blurry, something rough. And then it was like this, this thing. And it eventually became the point, um, the experience that it became so big. It, 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 like I didn't even take very much, but each time was so, so exciting and so rewarding and rich that, you know, that is the point at which I became more cautious <laughs> because I think you need to be careful. But yes, um, I'm a big fan. 
I think you, what did you say? It was, they're very linked in a way that one of my uh, crazy theories is that we wouldn't be humans as we are today without them. In fact, I didn't come up with this theory. It's a stoned ape theory. I'm sure you've heard of it, mm -hmm. um, most psychedelic fans. And I think it's interesting to point that me and you did not know um, or didn't discuss psychedelics at all before this, but it seems interesting just based off the uh, the flow of our conversation. I'm like, this girl probably trips. <laughs> and I love that because we talked about being static in our processes and finding a algorithm that works. And that algorithm may work at a specific time, but as the variables change, you've got to change the algorithm. Or that's why I, I think learning AI is such a big part of technology moving forward. Um, the question is how? How do we, as adults, when our brain starts to solidify what is this reality, and and even farther that, like in the 50s, 60s, 70s, later in age, how do we discuss important topics that don't have words with the younger generations because we've set in our mind what that reality is. And I think psychedelics is, is one of the answers. Like you said, there's other ways to get there, but um, the information that we're getting out of a lot of new studies is on a very non uh, mystical side, but more on the scientific side, um, it allows our brains to create new neural pathways. We literally have these little brain cells that have these arms always reaching out. And as these arms reach out over and over and over again, they become thicker, stronger, and that's what creates our default mode. And this is something that one year ago today, I didn't know any about this. And that's been one of the more exciting things about doing this podcast is, um, not only trusting people bringing up other things, but as they bring these things up, it becomes such a huge part of like, oh my gosh, how did I not know this? Because yeah. it affects everything. Yeah. Um, I, I really think that there's a huge stigma around it. I think there's a good reason there's stigma mm -hmm. because it is not without cost. Yes. In fact, there's a lot of cost to it. Um, I think that... I'm very optimistic in the way the world's going because we actually have the ability to have these conversations and discuss the nuance because what failed back in the 60s when, you know, LSD and all these kind of new way of thinking came out is we didn't have the ability to discuss the nuance and we saw the negative and completely shut it off. And I don't think that's going to happen now. I think we're going to be living in a world where we're going to be seeing the negative reactions to some of these um, substances that we're ingesting and be able to explain why instead of writing it off as an evil witch that put a spell on me like we did back in Salem times, we can actually say, oh, that's because his set and setting and dosage were off or he may have had a underlying propensity towards schizophrenia, um, which that's one thing I definitely want to look into more because it's that's something that it's a huge, huge cost. If you have a, uh, I, we, and we don't know this, I'm, I'm rambling right now because I'm, I'm super excited about uh, the fact that you do psychedelics. 
I'm probably going to cut out that last rant that I just had because I'm I'm trying to decide whether I want to bring up a specific thing, but it's a it's a personal sorry it's a personal uh, issue with someone else, and I I realize I probably shouldn't bring it up, so now I'm sitting here uh, lost my train of thought. But that's a great thing about not doing these live is you can just cut that part out. <laughs> but. Um, to get back on to what we were talking about before, you said you were pretty young when you first tried LSD, right? Mm-hmm. How old were you? I was about twenty-four. That's not too young. I was thinking like teens. I think no. I think mid twenties is a decent uh, time to start experimenting with expanding the mind. I I I don't think kids should. I know people have um, delved into it as a teenager and. I just dangerous. don't. Well, a I think it's lost on them, yeah. and uh, I don't think all substances have a diminishing effect, but I, I think to a point they do. Um, and I think if we're going to use these as tools and responsibly, we need to be able to understand what's really going about it. I think the car rental industry did it right. I think twenty five. That's a that's not a not a bad uh, way to go on. Um, so between. Um, LSD and mushrooms, you say mushrooms don't really sit well with you? No, they cause an overwhelming wave of self-loathing I can't quite deal with. I know, that's that's literally the opposite of what most people experience. It's unlucky. I don't know why. Do you know what dosage you take? Or is it just you? It's just, like- just them. I mean, it wasn't a lot. I don't think I've tried them like twice, I think now. And it went so badly that I just, I'm too scared to do it again. And also, I really like LSD. So I think, you know, I'm kind of okay with that. Yeah, I've been on Reddit lately and there's a new sub I just found. It's like research chemicals. Oh, okay. Have you been on that one before? I haven't been on there, but I know a little bit about research chemicals. This guy just posted a list of just his last year and he had like 30, 40 different chemicals Mm. that he's ingested and he put a description of each one. And I'm like, I don't. I don't know how I feel about all that. Yeah. Have, you, have you looked into any other uh, like research chemicals that uh, give a psychedelic effect? Mm, it's, it's you know it's hard to say how much of this I should say. I uh, well I, I can I can weigh in on one thing. At one point I think Alad was legal and I tried that and that was quite interesting. It was similar. What was that like? It's currently illegal, but at one point it was you know in the gray area of research chemicals and that was interesting. It was very similar. And people described it as similar to LSD, but without the head fuck. In practice, it was a lot like that, where basically you got lots of visuals and you were quite responsive to audio, but it would come with far less, uh, you know, soul stuff. But also the the nature of the visuals was slightly different. They were more angular. Like I remember, because you can compare the nature of visuals, can't you? Like there's a geometrical precision to a lot of LSD. With mushrooms, it's sort of similar, but it's more organic. And with Alad, it was, it wasn't quite a cross between the two, but it was a lot more jagged. Like there were more straight lines. They were not as, as sophisticated in terms of uh, you know the um, the richness of their detail. I think that I remember that being a thing. So it was like almost like a lower resolution copy, but but more angular. And that was the appeal. The appeal was that it wouldn't make you think too much and just give you like the the more fun times. But having said that. Although I think LSD is very dangerous, I think that that's actually one of the appeals is what it does to your soul. So, and, and like also since then, Allied, I think is, you know, like I said, it's illegal. I don't think it's manufactured anymore. 
There's also one PLSD which is said to be virtually identical to LSD, and that might be true. I'm not sure. Mm, yeah, but beyond that, a bit like you, I'm I'm concerned about research chemicals. I think that you ought to be. Anything that hasn't been somewhat researched and tried and, you know, these things, they're so gray, that means that there will be fewer resources used to test them, less time, fewer people, you know, less eyeballs looking at them. You don't want to mess with your brain too much, God knows, you know, because you've got something like Enbome, for example, which is bad, which is, you know, might imitate psychedelics like LSD, but uh, from what I know is literally bad for you. And if you can have that, then God knows what other research chemicals can bring. They're clearly not harmless. Absolutely. I always try to talk about the the harms, the potential harms, because even simple things like um, marijuana, alcohol, obviously has a ton of harms that we just kind of brush over as a society. Mm-hmm. Um, on the legality side that you brought up, is LSD and, and, and uh, psilocybin mushrooms legal in Austria? I don't think so. I know, what is it, um, Holland and Portugal, they're at least decriminalized. Mm -hmm. They're not fully legal. Um, Oregon in the US, just the state, they've decriminalized pretty much everything. I think they went the route of Portugal. Interesting. And then I think Denver, just the city in Colorado, um, legalized or decriminalized psilocybin mushrooms Mm -hmm. specifically. So there is definitely a move towards allowing certain substances. I don't have a ton of experience with any of them. Um, similar to you, the very first time I had an experience, it was more of, you know, just to party. I was kind of rebelling a little bit. Um, and that was by far the most intense experience mm-hmm. I'd have. And it was, uh, it was psilocybin mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And it was, I felt like I lived a few lifetimes. Mm-hmm. I got on a, I think people, uh, I got on a loop. Mm-hmm. where I was just going in a circle over and over and over again, which I hear is not a good place to be, but that yeah. was my first experience. Sure. Um, but what it required me to do is to find a way out. Mm-hmm. And I think that in and of itself was a growing experience mm. and being able to just simply see that the world is not what it was. Mm. Gosh, that's painful. Yeah, it, it is not easy. And that's why I would never push anyone to do anything that they didn't actively want to go into, but the benefits of it, it's like working out a muscle. Your muscle is going to be sore, but afterwards it can be stronger. Um, Have you had any personal experience with friends or um, anyone close to you that had like a long lasting negative effect by using them? Depends what you mean by negative. I, I Yes, I suppose I do. This is somebody I'm acquainted with. It was a life-changing experience for them. They were never the same to the point where they ended up having a long-term mental condition and they were not able to function in the world. They ended up doing something creative and they've done the best with what they what they could you know as a talented person with great passion and lots of love for the world but the fact is they were were very young possibly they were genetically predisposed to having a bad result and they were never the same again and you know they have now they have to take antipsychosis meditation medications and lots of other things to to not be paranoid to like to you know keep the bad thoughts out and to keep themselves a bit in order so 
it happens. Yeah. I think that's why you definitely need to be older. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's, there's some studies that talk about schizophrenia specifically and mm-hmm. how they don't, they don't know whether it's caused by, or it's just, you have an underlying predisposition and it brings it out of you and you mm-hmm. would have eventually uh, had the break. I don't know if break is the right term, but you would have eventually come down with the, the symptoms uh, eventually. Um, but we don't know enough. I've, I've tried looking into it because my, my brother-in-law, um, he does uh, have schizophrenia, paranoid mm. schizophrenia. And, you know, I, I wonder if there is a, an answer to, to getting them out of that or whether that should even be the goal. Maybe they just see the world in a different way. And it, it's hard on us because we see different things or experience different things, but to them it's fine. I I don't know. I I do actually have two two relevant things to say about that. For one thing, as far as I know, and I'm obviously not an expert on this, but from what I know, breaks with reality for, uh, for people who experience schizophrenia, so people who discover that they're actually schizophrenic, it appears that generally this experiences occur mostly up until a certain age. If, they, if this manifests, it tends to manifest, I think, up until sometimes in the mid-20s. After that, I think it can still happen, but it is less likely to do so. So I think that's one thing to consider, that you're possibly a lot more vulnerable if you do this kind of thing when you're younger. I don't know why. I don't know if it's a matter of being more robust mentally or if it's something that is actually just like biologically predetermined, but that is relevant. The other thing that I would mention, because, because I know a little, only a little bit about that, but do you, um, are you familiar with the concept of awakenings? No. I'm not very familiar with that either, but I think that this, you know, this term awakening, it can have, it can mean different things depending on who you ask. It is, I think, reasonably common in the community of people who meditate, you know, people who, who do a lot of meditation and sometimes their prolonged practice, which can take years, or you know less time sometimes what can happen is they can go through an awakening and i think you can go through more than one awakening where you realize that you know things are not how they seem and and at that point it becomes tricky some people think that psychosis and awakening are actually the same thing they think that the root is the same mm. so for example if i remember correctly I don't, I might be misremembering this, so you know, feel free to cut this out later if I'm wrong. But I, I remember coming across a quote from Carl Jung, who might have, I think he knew James Joyce, and I think it was James Joyce and his daughter. So I think that the, you know, that the exchange between Jung and Joyce was something like, um, you know, Joyce said, you know, look, my daughter, she, she understands me so well. She understands me better than anyone. She's able to you know, surf these remarkable ideas with me. She's so capable and creative and, uh, but, but you know, but, but she's like also got these emotional difficulties and she's struggling and she's just having an awful time. And Jung said, where you swim, she drowns. Hmm. So he thought it was the same thing. It was the same root that was causing her such great despair and that was making life so rich and beautiful for Joyce. At that point, I think actually metaphor can also be quite valuable because again, possibly like I've, I've seen some people say that 
one of the things that possibly schizophrenia means is that you know you're more likely to see patterns and things, right? Your pattern recognition thing it goes into overdrive. Instead of picking out patterns that are possibly more or less based in reality, you start picking out patterns that are not based in reality. So you know, there's people who don't see patterns, and there's people who just see patterns everywhere. So, mm, you know. So, you know, maybe sometimes you need the vessel to navigate that stuff. Sometimes maybe you need the system that can help you, like a tap that you can actually like either lessen the flow or you can divert it in such a way that these things that you're seeing, these the information that you're processing, that it's not too much and it doesn't sweep you away. So, and you know, that's, I think, even where things like religion are actually, again, very sticky. They can help or they can hinder. They can give you delusions or they can save you where they provide you again with a framework. They provide you a way of seeing things so that you're not alone, so that you know what to do with all these things that you're experiencing. Olga, thank you so much for spending the time to come and have this amazing conversation. My we pleasure. Definitely dive deep and uh, it gives a lot to think about. I, I definitely want to uh, Keep in touch. Uh, I think it's been a, uh, fascinating to just come across people who, like you pointed out, we are different in almost every way, but on the things that are deep and matter, we couldn't be more like. On my understanding of these things are very uh, nubile, very young, and um, is nubile? What does even nubile mean? I don't even know what that means, and I said it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about half the time, but that's part of the fun. Um, thank you so much for agreeing to come and spend your time. Thank you for the trust of being able to put yourself out on a limb, do something that you're not comfortable with, because that's that's kind of the point. I think that's how we grow and we get to experience new things. And I think people hearing you are going to definitely benefit from that. I am very happy that you invited me here. I greatly struggle with conversation and communication with people, and you've made it so easy and engaging and um, valuable. Thank you. I think that you are being hard on yourself. You, I think that you are better at doing this than I am, actually. <laughs> but again, thank you so much, and we'll keep in touch. Thank you. All right, bye, everybody. Hey everybody, the conversation is getting bigger and bigger, and I want to invite all of you to join in. There's a few ways to do it. You can go to IamWoodstock.com, that's I-A-M-Woodstock.com. There you'll find a contact form where you can input your email and contact me directly. You can also go to the I Am Woodstock Facebook page to leave comments and start a conversation with the entire IAW community. If you're a fan of pictures, check out the I Am Woodstock Instagram, where my wife is sharing some of the family adventures. If you're enjoying the show and want it to grow even more, go to the Good Stuff page on my website. There you'll find links to all of my sponsors as well as a link directly to the I Am Woodstock Patreon where you can become an official patron and allow me to be picky about the sponsors I choose. Thank you all for the support and don't forget, this is all about starting real conversations. If you're driving in your car, call up a friend who you haven't seen in a while and discuss some of the topics you've come across on the show. Trust me, you will not regret it. See you next time. I am Woodstock.